Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with lead guitarist and vocalist James Jimbo Mathis of the swing revival jazz band The Squirrel Nut Zippers. They are gearing up to release a brand new album, their first studio release in 18 years, slated for March 23, 2018 via their own label, Southern Broadcasting, called Beasts of Burgundy. And this will kick off a huge tour, and live music is their thing. This band stormed the jazz and music world in the late 90s with a swing revival. The band's music is a fusion of Delta Blues, Gypsy Jazz, 1930s era swing, Klezmer, New Orleans jazz, and this has given them a legion of fans and infused plenty of good jazz vibes in the world. They hit it big and performed at the 96 Summer Olympics in Atlanta and at President Clinton's second inaugural ball, along with so much more. After a break and a brand new lineup, they are back and they are better than ever and ready to roar. So get to know Jimbo, this great band, and dig this interview, my friends. Hey, it's a pleasure to speak with you. It's an honor. Thank you for taking a minute out today. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for reaching out to me, man. I'm looking forward to it. Right on. And before we begin, I just got to say, as I started kind of getting into jazz myself, my first baptism was a Miles Davis kind of blue, probably like a lot of people, as I was taking a flight to Seattle back in the 90s. But I got to say, the revival that you brought to jazz with jazz back in the 90s, there was a cat here in town named Dave Stevens, and we used to go down to an old part of Kansas City. And the real requisite was that your feet moved, you sweat, and there was beer. And uh yeah yeah it, it it was swinging man and you guys ushered in an era of jazz and revived it in a way that was beautiful so i just want to say thank you up front for instilling deeper and deeper in me a, a love of jazz so thank you thank you man you know and uh, i mean i realized it back in the 90s when i started researching it myself that it really was an entertainment form you know it's not a wasn't a serious thing when it first came out it wasn't canonized yet and so it was really for the people to move to and to, to escape into you know and so that's kind of part of our philosophy beautiful and speaking of movement this newest album beast of burgundy it's your first studio album in 17 years and i want to talk about it they're all originals and the first one that came out now that's out on itunes is carnival show and i just want to talk to you about kind of several things the revival of the band this album and i'll just kind of let you take the lead and go from there well um you know i wasn't sure what the future was going to hold for us i did know that i wanted to to revive the band rather than just reunite the band and for a number of reasons uh one of the main ones is a lot of the other cats are not really in business anymore and they're not in show business I didn't want to just come back and do something just for the sake of doing it. I, I figured it's going to take a lot of work to to get the orchestra rehearsed and and organized. And I figured by the time we did that, we might as well kind of make a go of it. You know, all in the interim, say the 18 years since the last Zippers record came out, I've been quite busy as a producer and a writer and uh, entertainer myself and have met a, a whole lot of people. And I just realized it was a great opportunity to kind of cast a big net out and see what kind of orchestra I could assemble. So that's how the thing got really started getting some fresh life into it was with the new uh, the new cast. And uh, as I started hiring and auditioning and just talking to people, I realized, and, and as we started doing some concerts, 
uh, I realized what a, a wealth of talent I had there. One of my writing inspiration for the Zippers was always, it's always full of characters, you know. And uh, so I we did a lot of self-referential kind of writing for the different members of the band, just funny stories or personality, you know, um, personalities that lent themselves to kind of tongue-in-cheek or parody or dark humor type subject matter. And uh, so I just got really inspired, you know, by the by the new cast, and uh, and just started. Uh, then the writing started after that, and shortly thereafter, you know, I started popping in the studio with them every now and then, an off day. I mean, we work really fast, uh, and so maybe three or four days in the studio, scattered throughout the year. Uh, last year we had the record recorded course doing our homework doing our chord charts and horn charts and all that in advance but basically show up in the studio and perform songs we've never played before you know or no one's ever even heard and so that's quite exciting you know and then to have it be able to trust that it was going to turn out just because of the talent right on well let's go back to the beginnings of this band and the start with you and tom and Catherine and chris and don and ken I want to know, in the beginning, before you guys released your debut, how did all of this come together to begin the dynasty known as the Squirrel Nut Zippers? Well, it started out just as, as my personal research into the roots of old, weird American music. You know, I mean, I'm a lifelong musician and a writer, and I always like the, to know where things come from, you know, so... Me, you know, coming up in the, I'm born in 1967 and I grew up in a family of musicians doing a southern folk idiom, you know. I mean, we did, we did gospel and country bluegrass, that type of thing, blues. You know, being a teenager and then hearing all the pop music, the Beatles and everything that was out and the, the alternative music in the 80s, I realized I really needed to to know where all that stuff came from before I started trying something, um, just because I felt overwhelmed by it, you know. And uh, so I gradually started tracing the roots back, and I realized, you know, that the the Beatles were into Chuck Berry and and you know and into Jimmy Reed, and and they would do like Bessemé Mucho and stuff. And it's like, what is Bessemé Mucho, you know? And so I just started following it back. And uh, once I moved up to Chapel Hill, I had re- access to, like, the library there the, with the, the folk department and uh, the record stores, the bookstores, and all that kind of information. So I gave myself a, I was giving myself a big education. And naturally, as a writer, once I started figuring out, oh, here's uh, the Smithsonian collection of classic jazz, for example. I, fa- I was able to find those in, you know, thrift shops and stuff. And I was like, well, what in the world is is this, you know, and how do you play, like, St. Louis Blues by W.C. Handy? Like, what is what are the chords, you know? <laughs> and as I started putting my hands on it and, and, and figuring it out, then I naturally wanted to play it. And I naturally wanted to write in those different idioms. And so I just started kind of 
finding people around me that were interested in the same thing as a way to um, to participate in that. And uh, so really there were no kind of goals other than just excitement, um, curiosity, creativity, you know. Uh, those were the real, that was the real impetus. We had no intention of being a professional group. You know, it never crossed our mind. Uh, certainly didn't cross my mind. You know, we had a, a record before the inevitable. It was a 45. So after our first performance, we were just going to do like a performance in town. We performed, and we had to. It was such a success. We had to play the set over like four times. You know, and then by that day, we had a record deal. You know, something. We had a phone call on the payphone at the little bistro where we were, and it was this record label called Merge. And they were like, "We were just down there, and you know, y'all want to be on our label." Uh, and you know back in the payphone days and uh and so you know we said sure and then it just really took off and we just basically had to keep up there for a while really put us in a crucible um from having to decide what we were going to do and how we were going to do it um and put us in in a pressure cooker to ride and really get this thing going and that's basically the the start Probably what a lot of people don't realize, too, is that the name of the band came from a bootleg term, but it was about a newspaper article about some guy that got drunk and went up in a tree and refused to come down, and the headline was Squirrel Nut Zipper. Right, because the Nut Zipper was the name of the hooch. <laughs> and so it, it was, it, this was back in Prohibition days. Up in, this was up in Cambridge, Mass., uh, where the, the company was that... that uh, that took the name for their candy, and, that's, and, and it fit with our aesthetic perfectly well. It, it's a harmless sounding thing, but it's got a sort of nefarious background to it, like so much American pop, especially the old weird America. You know, there's so much tongue in cheek and so much dark humor goes into that. So they're thinking this would be a great name for a candy to sell to children. You know. <laughs> <laughs> in with our aesthetic perfectly. Uh, That's perfect. Let me ask you this about the timelessness of kind of the mix of music that you embody, which is, you know, Delta Blues, Gypsy Jazz, 30s era swing, New Orleans jazz, and, and even influences like Cab Calloway and Django Reinhardt. My question to you is this. What is so timeless about these cats and the sound that they cultivated that resonates not only into today, but kind of provided a level of backbone for you to bring in a revival of jazz and getting people to move again? Well, it's just, it's a classic American art form, for one, you know. So, I mean, it's just, it's pretty much established that jazz is the American contribution, uh, one of the great ones to the world of arts. So, you know, I mean, these guys were just in a time where it was just being created, it was just being invented. They just happened to have a wealth of, of talent among them. So, and there was money in it, you know. There were there, there was uh, an audience for it, and it was just one of those serendipitous things that America has created. I mean, a big part of our stuff is, even goes to, like, the cabaret vaudeville, cabaret, uh, like 30s Calypso, you know, like Trinidad, uh, the early wave of, um, of popular Calypso music, you know, when they started bringing in Latin influences 
into our into the sound. So we are as much vaudeville as anything with the humor and the and the different singers and this type of thing. And we also, you know, drew our influences on not being jazz people and just being more creative types. We got our, you know, my first exposure to, to a lot of the swing and stuff was on, like, Looney Tunes cartoons and uh, things like The Little Rascals and, like, um, you know, Betty Boop cartoons and stuff that you could see on TV after school. Um, you know, so that you would see Cab Calloway as, like, a ghost in, the, you know, an underworld scenario you know, followed by all these skeletons and stuff. So the visual part of it really played into it as well. You know, the one thing about what you said about the formation and kind of the early evolution of the band is that you just didn't expect that it was going to become a thing. And then all of a sudden, in 96, you're at the Olympics in Atlanta. You're playing for the second inauguration of Clinton. You're on Letterman. You're doing Conan. Dick Clark's New Year's Eve. You just, everything just totally exploded. How did you guys deal with that enormous amount of exposure and, you know, quote-unquote fame at that point? Yeah, I mean, everybody handled it differently, um, you know, not really being part of the plan. So some people were very upset by it, you know, um, and and really didn't want it um, or couldn't handle it. To me, it was... Um, it was just a blessing and motivation and uh, to, to get better, to, um, you know, take this life path, you know. I mean, I was going to be a Latin professor uh, when the zippers were, were, I was taking night classes in, in Latin, romantic poetry and stuff, and I was going to, I was thinking about going to academia. And music, even though it had been part of my life since I was born, it wasn't something I thought of for a, to do for a living. So to have all that happen and, and to all of a sudden be selling out concerts, I mean, it's a lot of uh, success. And people handle success very differently. I, I just looked at it as a blessing and just a sign from heaven that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Even in the lean years, you know, I mean, I've, I've been a journeyman all this time and really have uh, had to work a lot, you know, in, in music to stay in it. And uh, even through the hard times, it, it was always rewarding and gratifying to me to be a part of that, uh, producing, making records, and writing, you know, and entertaining. So it set me on the path, and it basically I was not to be deterred after that. So the one thing that I find interesting about, you know, kind of the timeline of you guys is that you, you, you rise pretty quick to this meteoric level of fame. By the 2000s, you're inactive, and there's things that are happening in between. But at this point right now in 2018 – you got a new album coming out. I have no doubt that it's going to do well. You're going on a big tour. And now you're wiser. You're older. You're wiser. You've seen all of this in the rearview mirror. Is there a level of this now that's kind of nirvonic that's really just going to be a pleasure to get back to it and feel it in a different way as an older man? Absolutely. I mean, it's been, it's been that way since we started last year. You know, it's just been – feels like we're, I'm finally ready to do it, you know, um, and so you're exactly right. Uh, the experience and all the bark that's on me has really put me in a place to appreciate it even more, uh, appreciate the, the people in my band even more, um, and appreciate the audiences even more. I'm ready for it now uh, in, a, in a much 
more profound way. And um, it's hard to express, but um, you hit the nail on the head, I'd say, there. You know, I, I years ago when I was in my 20s, I was really into poetry as well, and you mentioned that. And I remember at the time I wasn't really pursuing publishing as much, and I just kept thinking I'm not ready. I haven't accumulated enough experience, and I guess that's kind of metaphorically speaking what I see with this is that when you get to those levels of doing all of those things and you get older and wiser, and I'm in my mid-40s now, there's something it's – like, it's like reading a book again. It's like, you know, I read On the Road when I was in my 20s, but when I read it, in my early 40s, there was a whole new sparkle, a whole new shine, a way that I actually had seen a lot of those things, and there was a new definition. So I imagine that's kind of the pleasure of being a part of this. Very much so, and, and, and it's funny you should mention the book thing, because, you know, I, I read a lot of biographies, autobiographies from, the, from all the musicians, you know, from the, from the jazz era, just to learn. It's like I'm the guy in the book now. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. I don't, I don't have to read them anymore because you know I, I've kind of turned the corner. Really, it's a humbling feeling and uh, gives me a lot to be thankful for. You know, the one thing over your life is you filled a lot of arenas, played in front of a lot of fans. But I want to ask you, what shows have you seen that have really resonated with you? Live shows that have made a deep impact on you? say one of the biggest ones uh, that made made the biggest impact, well, the show that we did with Tony Bennett and the um, Count Basie Orchestra in uh, at Radio City, um, to watch Tony Bennett work, this, work with that orchestra was one of the great moments of my life, uh, and he actually had him turn the PA off in, in Radio City because it was designed, you know, for pre-PA, pre-electricity PAs, you know. And they performed several numbers with no microphones and just him singing. And it was incredible to, to hear that in that hall. One of our big influences was Fats Waller, you know, the, the, the dark humor he brought and to just doing all those show tunes and the, the skill level he was able to bring to all that material he did. So we were lucky enough to, to actually, I was lucky enough to study under Al Casey, you know, his guitarist up in New York. We tracked him down. He was still alive, and he, he was on all of the, the Fats Waller recordings. And uh, and he had the old Gibson guitar under the bed, and he still performed with the uh, Harlem Blues Jazz All Stars, which was all cats of his age. And we did numbers of shows with them in Manhattan and and uh, mostly Manhattan and uh, the New York area. And that was a real, real, all of those shows were just fantastic. The older guys, you know, is what I've always been most struck by um, and have meant the most to me. That was certainly a big one there. My friendship with Al was just amazing. And when I think back on that, I just, I can't believe that was me that got to do that, you know, and uh, to, to learn from him. Not, and not so much where do you put your fingers. I mean, that's up to you, you know, but just absorbing his personality, his character, it's just amazing to, to sit there with him and go, wow, he played on Jitterbug Waltz, and he played on Honeysuckle Rose, and, and you know what I'm saying? It's just yeah, unbelievable. Um, Surreal. Yeah. Yes, very much so. When I think back on it now, it, it doesn't even seem real. That's beautiful, man. What do you like the best about being not only 
a musician but an entertainer. What 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 is at the top of the list that motivates you to do that? I'd say for me, uh, and this was the, the case with the zippers in the first incarnation. I like the multi generational thing about it. Um, the fact that when we first started, it was something that young people could bring their grandparents to to a nightclub, you know, and stay out late and have a great time and buy them the CD or the album and, and listen to it at home, you know, with their grandparents and or their parents. Um, and 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 the way it was a real social, multi-generational thing. We always go at the end of the shows, you know, we go out to the lobby and, and just take pictures and just meet whoever wants to talk to me, you know, from the, the concert. So and sometimes it takes, you know, if there's, couple thousand people there i mean you'll be there for a couple of hours and so just hearing the short stories that people share and you know seeing tears in their eyes talking about their grandparents or uh, that are deceased or their own children that they're bringing to the to the show and they're introducing me to you know it, it means a lot to me to hear those stories and to just look out and see this just the joy you know on people's faces now with this big gap of time, people, you know, a lot of people grew up listening to us and never saw us. So they were 8 and 10 years old but when we broke up, you know. And so they're coming now in, the, in this, and they're just, they, they think they're seeing something they have never would ever see. You know, they thought it would be impossible that this would happen. And so um, there's a real joy there and a real elation, and, and that is, the most important thing. The, the fans are, are number one. You know, the one thing that you probably couldn't have foreseen in the first incarnation of the band is what would have happened and what would have led to today. But if there's any way that you could kind of, in any way, pontificate a little bit about what you see the future of the band, what would you like to see, say, we talk in 10 years from now, what do you want to see happen with your career in the band? I mean, I, I think we're right on it. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to change a thing. I would just want to keep a top-notch orchestra. I don't think this music really has a shelf life. I can I absolutely foresee me doing the same thing in my 70s or even 80s if I'm blessed to live that long because I don't think it's good. I don't think this type of music will ever go out of style. It shouldn't ever not be cool to go see the zippers, you know. And so I wouldn't change a thing, man. I just like to grow into it more uh I feel like with this new record, you know, it was 18 years in the gestating to come out and really top all the other stuff that we did. You know, that's amazing to me that we we're not didn't have to go back and try to do it, you know, or force it. Um, it just came easily, naturally, with a higher skill set, and therefore it's to me, it's superior. I couldn't be more proud of that. And uh, to add 12 new songs to the canon of material we have is a real, like I say, it's, um, it's it doesn't almost it doesn't seem real. But we've got a lot more life in us. Let me ask you one more question, and it's this: okay. everyone has a everyone has a version of you, your family, your friends, your fans. But when you wake up and you face the world, who are you? Who do you think you are? Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm an artist, 
at heart, and you know, I'll always be a, a, an artist, and that's what I am. So if I'm not doing zipper stuff, I'm doing or or doing music. I'm doing some form form of visual art, or I'm scheming on some sort of you know. I, I'm very active in like marionettes and, and theater things, and so an artist first, you know, that's what keeps me really moving in life. It's just that next project, be it a film project or be it an album project. or And, and then basically just, you know, I, I really, I've set out to be a humble person. I've set out to be an ego-free person. I'd never admired artists who were self-absorbed, who were tortured unnecessarily. I mean, there's a certain amount of suffering in art that goes with it without saying. But, you know, I always wanted to be a gregarious, open person with my art and, and, and that art is life and so that translates into every other aspect of my my sphere of life, you know, so I try to live up to a high standard. Beautiful. Jimbo, that's great. That I think that's a great way to wrap everything up. Thank you for the music. Thank you for coming back and making everybody dance, man. It's great. I love it. Thank you, baby. Thank you. Take it easy. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Memphis, Mississippi, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Jimbo for his class, his cool, and all that music. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.